For most people, change is hard. There may be a couple of folks out there who like change, but most of us, consistency is the, is the thing. We want things to stay the same. If nothing ever changed, we'd be entirely happy with that. It's hard, whether it's a new job with new performance expectations, new school with new things to learn, maybe it's a new baby in the house with sleepless nights and a new routine and demanding schedules, maybe it's a new arrangement of the chairs in the fellowship hall. Change is hard. I told you I was going to preach about it, didn't I? (laughs) Change is tough. And the vision of the mind of Christ that Paul articulates for the Philippians and for us requires change, doesn't it? Which makes it hard. Because none of us come into the world looking like Jesus, do we? None of us come into the world filled with self-giving, other-oriented love. We come into the world like every baby wanting stuff for us, someone to feed us, someone to care. We need and depend on other people, and we want other people to do things for us. And as we grow into adults, if the Lord doesn't get a hold of us, we continue just wanting everyone else to do things for us. We aren't naturally other-oriented. We aren't naturally self-giving. We're not naturally self-sacrificial. All of those terms and words that describe the mind of Christ in Philippians, self-giving, other-oriented love, none of us have that naturally. And that means if we're going to live into Paul's vision for the mind of Christ in his church, in Jesus' church, it takes change. The problem with change is, we've already said it, it is isn't it? Sometimes that change isn't only hard. Sometimes it feels not only challenging. Sometimes it feels downright impossible, doesn't it? And that may be how we feel when we read Philippians 2, especially the early part we've looked at the last few weeks, where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit This is chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Really, Paul, nothing, nothing at all, ever. And if that's not bad enough, he writes verse (laughs) 4. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. And you're thinking, Paul, never to my own. You want me always focused in other-oriented love on my spouse and my kids and the people sitting next to me in church and the kids in my Sunday school class and my co-workers and my pastor or the church. You get the idea? It's, it's a comprehensive vision. And usually, if we're reading this, we kind of read through it and we, yeah, look not to your own interest. Got that down. We're good. You know, I love people. It's great. But if we stop and we think about how massive this vision is, it's stunning, isn't it? Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And if it feels tough there, then he goes to Jesus. Have the same mind in you that was in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God. (laughs) So you were saying, Paul, that the mind of God, the mind in Christ who is God, you want that in my body? You want that to characterize our common life? I mean, come on, Paul. It's Jesus. He's God. We're only human. And Paul says, well, so is Jesus, human. 
If you want to know what God's design for human life is, well, look at Jesus. <laughs> That's the point he makes. He empties himself. Jesus empties himself, takes the form of the slave, and is born in human likeness. And for the first time in the history of the world, we've got one human being who is consistently, comprehensively, exhaustively, never-endingly other-oriented, self-giving in love. Jesus. And Paul says, guess what, Philippians? Guess what, Hope Hopeholians? I haven't actually, is that what we call ourselves? <laughs> What's that? That sounds good to me, I guess, you know. All that stuff about Jesus, that's for you. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And you can hear the Philippians doubting. You might hear, can hear them objecting, thinking, it just doesn't feel possible, Paul. It just doesn't feel possible. And you can begin to get the sense that Paul anticipates the objection, doesn't he? Because beginning in verse 19, he starts talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, you may be thinking, preacher, these are travel plans. I'm going to send Timothy to you, and I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you, and they'll You'll have a great time when they get there, and you'll encourage. I mean, what sort of spiritual significance are we going to pull out of the travel plans? And the first time I preached through Philippians, that was my worry when I got to this passage. 12, 13 years ago, I'm like, what have I got myself into? These are travel plans. How can we get some spiritual principles out of travel plans? But then if you read them again, you discover that Timothy and Epaphroditus embody all the stuff Paul is calling for in the letter. These guys are Christ-like in real life. They exhibit and embody the mind of Christ that Paul is describing all through the previous few verses. This passage also reveals, though, we have to peer deep to see it. The absolute necessity of a deep and abiding commitment to the local church. Travel plans. Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of Christ-like life in real living human bodies. And as we explore their stories and dig in, we will find that at the heart of the whole thing is a vision of the church. And the thing we discover when we draw those two realities together is that if you want the mind of Christ, you need the body of Christ. That's the bottom line. If you want the mind of Christ, you need the body of Christ. Let's talk about Timothy. Paul says, I hope, this is chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him. And what's the thing that sets Timothy apart from everyone else? Verse 20, a genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians. He is not oriented toward himself, but towards the other. 
And in this case, the other is the Philippians. And Paul goes on. Have no one like him. All of them, he explains in verse 21, are seeking their own interests. I wonder who these, he doesn't tell us who these folks are. Maybe these are the preachers back in chapter 1 who are trying to build up Paul's pain. <laughs> you know, we don't, he doesn't clarify, but you want to know, who is he hanging out with? Right? All these very self-interested, selfish people, and Timothy's the only one who cares about anyone else. But that's what he says, right? Have no one else like him. All of these other people are seeking their own interests. And when we hear that word interest, we ought to be thinking about what he says in chapter 2, verse 4, right? Look not to your own interests. So apparently there's this whole group of folks who are not obeying the command from earlier in the chapter. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Philippians 2, verse 4. But Timothy, that's the thing that sets him apart. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. In contrast to people who are seeking their own interests, Timothy is seeking your interest. And so the very thing that he commands the Philippians to do, look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others, and they come back and say, well, Paul, it's really tough. And Paul says, well, look at Jesus. He looks not to his, his interest, but to ours. Right? He's God, and he humbles himself, and he empties himself, and he sacrifices himself, and he dies for us. People don't die on crosses because they're filled with self-interest. People don't die on crosses because they're filled with self-interest. They only do it if they're filled with other-oriented love. The Philippians are like, Paul, we hear that. We know we love Jesus. Jesus is great. We're not Jesus. And Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And if you think it's impossible, look at Timothy, who stands apart from the crowd precisely because he embodies the mind of Christ. And this again, friends, helps us realize that this mind of Christ is not just something that happens in our head. It's not like you stand up and say the creeds or something like that. You can check off, you know, mind of Christ because I'm thinking like Jesus. This is a disposition of character, right? Timothy isn't passing a theology test here. Theology is important, but that's not the sum and substance of the mind of Christ. He's living out. He is embodying other-oriented love. He's not consumed with self-interest. In fact, the way Paul talks, Timothy isn't focused on himself at all. He's focused on the gospel and the mission and caring for the Philippians in their time of suffering and trial. Read on. Verse 22, Timothy's worth you know. How like a son with a father he has served me in the work of the gospel. So here's, you ever, you got one of those people that you've just been on the front lines with them. Maybe you're on the mission team together and you've been in Costa Rica or you've been at the UMCOR warehouse and you're there and you know their character and you know they are 100% all in for Jesus and you can testify to it. And if we put this person on that job, you can count on it being done well and with excellence because they're not looking to their own interest. They're not carving out anything for themselves. They are thoroughly committed to the mission. And You've been with people like that and you know who they are and you're confident that they embody this character. And so that's what Paul is saying. Look, me and Timothy, we've been to Ephesus. We've been to Corinth. We've worked and we've read Acts. We traveled all over the place together. And I've seen his character on the front lines of the mission. You can count on this guy. He'll be there for you embodying the mind of Christ. Timothy is Christ-like in real life. Epaphroditus 
traveled from the Philippians, he is one of them, he's part of their congregation, traveled from them to Paul in his imprisonment, because in the ancient world, um, <laughs> if you went to prison, it wasn't a three square meals a day kind of thing. Um, you better hope you had some friends who might show up with a little something left over, or maybe a, a goodie basket, because if not, the Romans sure weren't worried about it. <laughs> So Epaphroditus is coming from the Philippians to offer support to Paul during his time of imprisonment. That's what Paul means when he says he risked his life to make up for those services that you couldn't give me. He came as your ambassador to me to offer service and support in my imprisonment. And it almost killed him. He risked his life to do this ministry and I've heard, Paul says, that you were sorrowful, you're worried about him, they've got anxiety. The Philippians had heard Epaphroditus, he's not well. We don't know if he got sick or if he ran into bandits. We're not clear on the details. The Philippians probably had heard things, and Paul wants to reassure them. He's here, he's with me, he made it, he's better, and I'm going to send him back. He's probably the one that took the letter that we're reading and delivered it. Here's the place where I want to dig in. First of all, he's been longing for the Philippians and he's been distressed because he heard that they heard he was ill. He was unwell. He was close to death. His concern isn't with his own recovery, apparently. It's with making sure that his friends know he's okay. Sounds like other-oriented love to me. But even more so, Paul has a much deeper point to make. Verse 28, I'm all the more eager to send him, therefore, in order that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Welcome him then in the Lord with all joy and honor such people. Why? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me. Two words there, and remember, he's repeating this, so it's got to be important. He risked his life and came close to death, Right? Let's say we're the ones sent out from the Philippians to care for Paul, and along the way we run into trouble or we begin to feel unwell, but we better get back while we can <laughs> or stop off for a while, recover, maybe stay somewhere for a bit until we're better. But Epaphroditus apparently is the kind of guy who pushes through because the mission is more important than anything for him, and he's got to make sure that the support from the Philippians gets all the way to the apostle. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. Paul's point isn't the travel plans primarily. His point is that this guy, Epaphroditus, embodies the sort of thing he said about Jesus earlier in the chapter. He emptied himself. He was obedient to the point of death. And we begin to get a vision of what it looks like for the mind of Christ to be embodied in a real life human being. These are two men who put the gospel in the church and the mission above everything else. Church isn't an activity, one activity among many for them. It's life because Jesus Christ is Lord. 
because he's resurrected, because Jesus sacrificed everything for them. And they're so captured by this vision of the gospel of the Lord who suffered unto death to redeem them and restore them, to reconcile them to God and us to God. The one whose arms were spread wide, whose hands and feet were pierced, whose scalp was punctured by thorns, whose back was beaten and hung, the flesh hung from the bones. They're so captured by this vision and so given in worship to the one who loved them and gave himself for, for them and for us. They're so, so taken that his character is coming to occupy and inhabit and define their lives. So that when the Philippians say, you know, Paul, that's a great idea, the mind of Christ being in us, but it's unrealistic, Paul can say, no, no, let me show you Timothy. Well, he's one of your guys, Paul, he's on the team. Let me tell you about Epaphroditus. He's one of you, you know him, you sat, you sat next to him in church, and he embodies the essence of the mind of Christ. He risked his life for the work of Christ. He almost died. He didn't consider comfort more important than life. He didn't consider health more important than mission. He didn't consider safety more important than fulfilling the gospel work to which he was called. He gave everything for Jesus. And he's one of you. And if Jesus can do it in him, Paul says, he can do it for all of us. Let this mind be in you, the very mind that was in Christ Jesus. Now, we get a glimpse of what the mind of Christ looks like in a real-life human body. The thing to see in the midst of these travel plans even more deeply is that all of that is only expressed in the community of the church. The mind of Christ can only come to its fullness in us if we are immersed and deeply committed to a community, a local church community of believers. That's the context for all of this. The context is the church. I want to send Timothy to you. To who? To the church. I want to send Epaphroditus to you. To who? To the church. Epaphroditus is your messenger. Whose messenger? The local church's messenger. I want to encourage you. Who's you? The church. The local church. And then all of this happens. All of this self-giving, other-oriented love only happens in the context of the local church. Right? Epaphroditus, Timothy, they're inhabiting, they're, they're embodying the mind of Christ. The, the mind of Christ inhabits their bodies but that's only expressed in relationship to Paul and the church, the Philippians, right? You can't be a lone ranger apostle. You can't be a lone ranger gospel worker. You can't be a lone ranger follower of Jesus because if you're a lone ranger, there's nobody to give other-oriented love to. Remember, love requires an object, Love requires another, a different person, a community. It makes no sense for a person who is solo to talk about love. 
That kind of Christ-like love can only be expressed and reach its fullness in the life of the church. That's why if you want the mind of Christ, you need the body of Christ. Timothy has no one to show Christ-like love to and show the mind of Christ to without the community of believers. Epaphroditus has no one to show Christ-like love to without the community of believers. Church is where the action is when it comes to growth in the mind of Christ, in holiness. And that's really what we're talking about when we say holiness, isn't it? You know, if we come, if we come to this idea of holiness and we kind of Think of that as a, a, a list of rules and boxes to be ticked, and a lot of times that's how we do it, right? Hey, Ten Commandments, kept all those today, didn't kill anybody, didn't covet anything, swell, God must be pleased with me, <laughs> you know? I mean, honestly, friends, the Ten Commandments in some ways kind of a low bar. <laughs> it's not that... The first couple have no other gods before me and not worshiping idols. That digs in pretty hard. But the whole not killing anyone thing, <laughs> it's kind of a low bar. And if our idea of holiness is kind of pulling out the list of rules and rolling out our legalistic approach to life and saying, well, you know, didn't do this this week, didn't do that that week, threw a little money in the plate this week, went and cleaned the thing up this week, I did this for the church this week. And if it's I did this and I did that and I didn't do this and I didn't do that, that's not holiness, that's legalism. And the only people who like legalism are legalists because they're in charge, not Jesus, them, all right? Holiness is the mind of Christ. Holiness is being captured by this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh and yet doesn't take advantage of that identity but offers himself in, in, in humbly as a servant filled with self-giving, self-sacrificial, other-oriented, 100%, nothing held back, no ambition, only love, portrayed most perfectly in the cross, obedient unto death. Right? Jesus defines holiness. The mind of Christ defines holiness. Holiness. I, I, I think that's a timely providential thing. Google, just like all of us, are having difficulty connecting these things. It is hard. It's stunningly hard. It's hard because it means our self-interest has to die. And nobody wants that, naturally. It only comes as a work of the grace of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Only. So when we talk about holiness, we're not talking about the list. We're talking about hearts filled with love for Christ and others. And that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love God and love your neighbor. And if you were to ask John Wesley what holiness means, that's how he would answer. 
The guy who said God raised up the people called Methodists for this one thing to talk about holiness, that's the only reason we exist, just so you know. <laughs> I think I said that maybe my first or second Sunday. It probably is about time to repeat it. If I fall off the stage, maybe Google can catch me. Um, the only reason Wesley said God raised up the Methodist people in the 18th century of England is to talk about holiness. That's it. And if we're not doing that, we're not living into our identity, according to Mr. Wesley. And Wesley's also the one who said there's no holiness but social holiness. And that has people have run wild with that and said all kinds of crazy things. All he meant was that you can only grow into Christ's likeness if you're deeply embedded in the life of the church. This is, look around, this is your social group. And these people are put here by God in his providence, in his sovereignty, in his will to make you holy. And you're here so that they, to be an instrument of their holiness. So that everyone's becoming more like Jesus. So that the nations can see the beauty of the love of God in the image of Christ manifest in his people. You know why that's so important today? Because we live in a day in North America where church is perceived as an option. We've already talked about it some in this series that church is one activity among many. Ball, work, stuff, whatever. It's an option. It doesn't sound like an option here, does it? And it's not an option if we want to be like Jesus. And it's not an option if we want to live into God's best for us. It's a necessity. It's required. It's fundamental. It's essential. We can't do without it. And if we're struggling and we're kind of thinking, you know, Lord, I'm trying to deal with this thing and the change. You want me to change? Change is hard. I know you want me to deal with this. Well, it's stunning. It's, the change will be impossible if we're not deeply embedded in a community of believers. And a couple of Sundays a month isn't enough. You think Epaphroditus, brothers and sisters, would be willing to die for the gospel if he only went to church once a month? No. North American Methodism has been in decline for 40 years. You probably knew that already. You know why? Because we bought into our cultural perception that church is an option. The reality is, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want the mind of Christ, you need the body of Christ. And if you don't have the body, the hands, the feet, the arms of Jesus holding you and caring for you and correcting you and reproving you and all those things, you'll never have his mind manifest in your body. There is no such thing as a solo disciple. Lone rangers aren't following Jesus. Because if you're following Jesus, you'll be alongside all the other people who are following him. The point isn't to be mean or legalistic about church attendance. The point is to say, friends, if we want life, there's only one place to get it. It's in the place where Jesus says, I'm the head and you're the members of my body. You want to be connected to the head? There's only one place to get connected. You can't be connected to the head if you watch church on TV on Sunday morning. 
I meet people all the time who say, well, I haven't been to church in a long time, but I watch fill in the blank. Friends, my heart, again, it, the idea isn't just sort of bringing the hammer down. My heart breaks for that attitude. Absolutely breaks. Because we're missing out on the gift of God to reproduce his character in us. It's like God is saying, I want to give you everything. And we're saying, I'd rather sleep in or go on vacation or something. <laughs> and we think about it that way, friends. I mean, this is the thing. We talk about being a church and wanting to grow and all these things. And, and all churches talk about, well, not all, but lots of churches talk about those things. But until we get this vision of holiness and this vision of the church where that is incubated and cultivated and where we grow to fullness in Christ in the community of believers connected to the body of Christ, we will never be who we want to be. We'll never be who Jesus wants us to be. So it's not about bringing down the hammer. It is about cultivating this deep vision where Christ is all and Christ is in all and he brings his people together to show each other his self-giving love. Because we'll only see his self-giving love if we see it in each other. And the world will only see it if they see it in us. So all this talk about the mind of Christ and holiness is ultimately about mission. Because God's desire is to fill the world with the beauty of his glory. That's what the prophets said, and it'll happen one day. One day the prophets declare the, the, the earth will be filled with the beauty of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's a funny image, isn't it? Because the waters are the sea. <laughs> it's this image of the world, all of it, people, plants, trees, everything, just bursting with the grandeur and the spectacular majesty of the Creator who made it and said, this is good and very good, and I'm going to make my home here, and I'm going to dwell here with you in communion. That's the God who says, this is what I want for the world that I've made. I want to fill it with my glory, and I want to do it through you. But if we never show up, we can't be a part of that. You know, they say life is 90% showing up. <laughs> so is church. <laughs> and it's got such a more profound end game. It's not about just kind of coming along and having a coffee and catching up on what's happened since Wednesday or last Sunday. It's about filling the world with the beauty of the holiness of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And until we can catch a vision of what God wants to do in us, through us, and for the world that looks like that, brothers and sisters, we have got a lot of work to do. And it only happens with us. Imagine what it would be like if you had little pockets of believers all over the state and the country and the world who were deeply committed to embodying the mind of Christ together. What do you think would happen to a nation or a world if you had 70 folks over here and 60 folks over Wesley said he only needed 10 or 12 folks who love nothing but Jesus and hate nothing but sin. <laughs> and when he got that, 
It started a revival that spread to two continents and now fills the world. I can't tell you how much I long to see the people called Methodists inflamed with that kind of passion again. Passion where <laughs> nothing else matters. We only want to worship Jesus, be remade in His image, and make sure other people get it too. Because that's what it means to be human. Human fulfillment isn't found in salaries or careers or education. I mean, all those things are important and great, and the Lord will use them as tools, but that is what they are. They are tools. They are tools and resources to fill the earth with the beauty of God. And nothing fills my heart with joy than the idea of a world filled with the beauty of God. And I long for that. That's why I get up and go to work. That's why I show up on Sunday morning. That's why we dig into the scriptures. That's why we do what we do, because we are out for the end game of seeing the world filled with the beauty of the holiness of the glory of God. But it won't happen if we're out scattered solo. If we want the mind of Christ formed in us, we must be deeply immersed and committed to the body of Christ. All in. 100% every bit of us. And that's the invitation as we pray. Jesus, take my life, all of it, every bit of it, for your glory, so that your mind can be formed in my body, so that one day they can say of me, he risked his life for the gospel. Nothing would stand in the way. Nothing.